For this evening, though, we just have the uh, last couple of verses here in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. Hear now the word of God. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful uh, for your word, for it speaks and things come into existence. Not only the cosmos that we see, but even we who are dead in our sins and trespasses, But now we are alive in Christ because you called us by name. As Jesus called Lazarus from life unto death, so you have called us, or from death unto life, you have called us from death unto life in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak those all-powerful words, that you would not only bring us to life, but that you would heal us, that you would sanctify us, and that you would glorify yourself in our midst. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Larger Catechism has some very wise counsel concerning the importance of preaching, and not only just preaching, but its particular connection to our salvation. In question 155 of the Larger Catechism, it asks, How is the word made effectual unto salvation? And so it answers, and I won't read the entire answer, but just the, uh, the salient part. The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will. So here it attaches a significant amount of power, not just to the reading of the word, but especially to the preaching of the word. And so the question that we would naturally want to ask is, is why do the Westminster divines attach so much power to the word of God? Well, I think we get an answer to this question from the passage that's before us as the author of Hebrews explains the importance of the word of God, and in particular, why we need to heed the voice of God. But at the same time, he also highlights the fact that as important as it is for us to heed the preaching of the word, to heed the word of God, it's not only the message of salvation for us, but it's also a message of hope that God gives to his people in the midst of of their suffering and persecution. And so, in other words, what he promises us is an unshakable kingdom through the preaching of his word and through his word, whether it is read, but especially when it is preached. I can remember as a child, 
uh, I would wake up in the middle of the night fearful because I had had some sort of disturbing dream. And so I would come to my parents, and my parents would typically, sometimes they would let me, you know, get into bed with them, but sometimes they would escort me back to my room. But it wasn't before they would utter words of comfort, words of peace, words of assurance, soothing words to help me fall back asleep, to know that everything was going to be okay, that I was safe, that my parents loved me. Those were soothing words. That's a sense of which I think we get a small sliver as to what the author is saying here, except the huge difference, the huge difference between, say, those soothing words of a parent to a frightened child versus the all-powerful word of God as it is preached and proclaimed is that one simply has a natural capacity to be able to impart comfort. The other has a supernatural divine power to convey not only salvation, not only healing, but also peace in the midst of the storm. And so what we want to do this evening is first we want to look at the significance as to how the author explains the power of God's speech what it means when he speaks and why it is uh, that we're supposed to listen. Second, we want to hear what the author has to say about the nature of the coming kingdom. And then third and finally, we want to pray and we want to essentially respond in faithfulness and obedience by praying. And we can summarize it this way with those familiar words from the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. In other words, if God is sending his kingdom and this is the message of his word, then we want to pray all the more. Yes, O Lord, let it come, let it come. And so this, uh, let's begin here with first in our efforts to understand what it means for God to speak to his people, is that as the author, we can say he's rounding the bend as he's coming to the final turn here uh, towards the end of his letter and he wraps it up, he wants us to recognize a key factor about his letter which leads to an important conclusion here, and namely, it is the nature of the power of God's word. And so what we can do is we can fan out into other portions of the New Testament where we can perhaps provide a little background for this, and that the first thing that we have to remember is that the word of God, at least in its written form, is the inspired word of God. It is given by the Holy Spirit, and thus it is powerful. Thus it can save. Thus it can convey peace. Paul, for example, as we were reading from 2 Timothy moments ago, he says later on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is breathed out by the very Holy Spirit. And so we can place the, the, the book of Hebrews under this category of the inspired word of God. So what this means is that what the author gives us here in the book of Hebrews isn't simply self-help. It isn't medicinal in the sense that we would say, let me give you some good advice. Let me give you a good stock tip. Let me give you a good, some good advice as to how to better take care of your health. 
Let me give you some good counsel as to how you should raise your children. This is, in its written form, it is the inspired word of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing that we want to note here, that the character of God's word. But secondly, we want, what we want to note about this particular form of God's word in its written form is that, as I mentioned many months ago, this letter uh, is essentially a written form of a sermon. The, the word, word of God would have come to the recipients of this letter. They would have gathered uh, there in t- uh, each and every Lord's Day, but they would have gathered there on a particular Lord's Day, and they would have listened to this letter being read in its entirety. This letter, in that respect, is essentially a sermon. It's a sermon. And so whether we're talking about the written scriptures or even we can say and extend this out to the preached word of God to the degree to which the sermon uh, traces the lines of, of scripture itself, the degree to which it echoes the word of God. So whether it is written or whether it is preached, the word of God goes forth. It is the voice of God to the people of God. And so this is why I think the author says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, and I think the reference here is to those at Sinai, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Now remember last week when we were talking about the differences between Sinai and Zion, how the people of God were gathered there at the foot of of Sinai, and the, the thunder, the lightning, and all of the terror of Mount Sinai bore down upon them, such to the, the, the fact that the people did not want to hear the word of God. They were so scared of it. They said, you go, we do not want to be terrorized by God's word anymore. And so the author wants them to know, he wants us to know that though we have gathered at Zion, and though Zion is a peaceful place, though it is a place of comfort, it is a place of joy, it is a place of mercy and grace, we should not take the word of God as an insignificant thing. We should not treat the preached word of God as if it is a small thing. Yes, we bask in the glory and in the warmth and the light of Zion's clear skies, but we mustn't think that fair weather, therefore, gives us license to ignore God speaking in his word, whether it is the written word or whether it is the word preached. I think sometimes that that is a sad result when we encounter difficulties, when we encounter trials, when we, our patience wears thin. We think that perhaps the difficulty in our life gives us reason to ignore the word of God. We think, well, if God has forgotten about us, then perhaps we can forget about him. And yet what the author is saying, and remember, this is a letter written to them, a sermon, if you will, in written form, written to these first century Jewish Christians who are suffering. And his continual drumbeat throughout the entirety of this epistle has been, do not 
turn back. Do not go back to the old ways. Press on. Go forward. And what he's saying here is don't ignore this word. Don't ignore my counsel. Don't ignore God speaking to you. And so this is something that we always need to remember. One of the things that I think that is unfortunate about so-called preaching in the broader church is that so much of it are simply just moral platitudes. It's just self-help. You know, it's the health and wealth gospel. If, if you're not healthy and wealthy, then you must be sinning. Obey God and you will become healthy and wealthy. And so sometimes what happens is that people will go to church as if they're listening to a Tony Robbins seminar. Or as if they're listening to somebody just tell them some good advice or perhaps, uh, you know, tell a few stories. I once uh, had uh, one of my colleagues at my former institution uh, hear criticism about their pastor, and uh, it was a pastor in another town. And they said, well, what's the problem with the pastor's preaching? And he said, well, the problem is, is that you have to listen to 20 minutes of his family's stories before you can actually get to the word of God. Well, you don't want to come for story time. You don't want to come to hear just good advice. If that's the case, the, the internet is filled with all of that kind of stuff. Historically speaking, this is why the Reformed tradition, our tradition, has placed such a high premium on the Word of God, especially the Word of God preached. We read that in larger catechism question 155, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word an effectual means of salvation. There was one confession of faith written by Heinrich Bullinger, who was Ulrich Zwingli's successor in Zurich, Switzerland in the 16th century. And he wrote a confession of faith called the Second Helvetic Confession, the Second Swiss Confession. And it was published in 1566. He says this in his article on the Word of God. He says, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. He says, wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. If I can put it in these terms, when the preacher utters the word of God, it is the voice of God to the people who have ears to hear because it's the spirit of God that takes that preached word and brings it into our hearts and brings it into our lives. It's like this has always weighed very heavily upon me throughout my ministry. That I'm not preaching platitudes, that I'm not preaching just stories or good, th- good times. And when I was younger, uh, and this was perhaps maybe within the first five, six years of my ministry, I was preaching on one Sunday morning, and we were about to have the Lord's Supper, and I was a bit nervous because there seemed to be an inordinate number of people in church sleeping. And so right before we took the Lord's Supper, because this weighed heavily upon me, I said it as gently as I could, (laughs) 
I said it as kindly as I could, but nevertheless as forthrightly as I could. I said, beloved in Christ, before we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I know that there are a number of you that I saw with eyes closed and were perhaps asleep. I said, if you're on medication, okay, I get it, I understand. Sometimes our medication can make us sleepy. But if you were asleep, maybe it's best that you not take the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't know if I would do that today. I don't know if I would do that today. But one of the things that has always struck me, it's it's Paul's words, and I think that this runs to the core of what the author is saying here and it's Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. For we, in his preaching, he would say, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? What Paul is saying is he's saying the same preached word, the same gospel that goes forth, is both a message of salvation as well as a message of condemnation. For those who believe, it is salvation. For those who do not believe, it is condemnation. And we see this in the very crucifixion of Christ himself as Christ hung upon the cross. There were two thieves, one on either side of him. It's the same Savior, same event, same time, same words that Christ is speaking. And one thief rejects him and the other thief believes in him and Jesus says to the thief that believed in him for this day he will be with me in paradise to the other thief the other thief we would assume died in unbelief and therefore he was judged same event same words same savior one unto death one unto life and so this is what the author is saying he's saying heed the voice of God To put it this way, there are no neutral encounters with the living God. You cannot walk into the presence of God and then walk away and say, hmm, that was interesting. We either enter into God's presence unto blessing or we enter into God's presence unto judgment. And this is what the author is saying. Don't try to turn away. Seek God in Christ by faith and receive his word. Heed his word. It is powerful unto salvation. It is powerful unto sanctification. It is powerful unto your comfort and peace. But what is it that the word of God says? What is it that he's been emphasizing throughout this entirety of this letter here in in, in the book of Hebrews? Well, secondly, it's about the coming kingdom. And he says in verses 26 and 27, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now... Now he has promised, yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now what's fascinating here is that the author goes to the Old Testament and to a little patch of scripture that is perhaps not that well known to most. He cites the book of Haggai, which is a prophet, minor prophet, not because of the minor nature of his message, but because of the minor nature of its size. It's a mere two chapters long. And the prophet Haggai uh, ministered to the people of Israel 
as they returned from the exile in Babylon. And as they returned, the temple had been destroyed. And so the people had the responsibility and the obligation and the command of God to rebuild the temple. And so the people rebuilt the temple, but as they looked upon it, they mourned. Haggai 2, 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? There were people there on that day who could remember the Solomonic temple in all of its splendor and glory. Its magnificence, its pillars, its foundations, uh, its courtyard, uh, the, the sacrificial furniture of the temple. And yet here they looked at this, that this small, pathetic-looking temple in comparison, and they said, who was, not, who, was, who was here left among you who saw this house in its former glory? It was pathetic. It seemed insignificant in comparison to the Solomonic temple. But God spoke to the prophet on that day, and the prophet spoke to the people. And he said, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth and the heavens. In other words, just as he shook the earth back at Sinai, he would now shake not only the earth, but he would also shake the heavens. What does he mean by this? He's saying that he would shake the heavens and the earth, and he would bring judgment upon the wicked, and he would vindicate his people. This temple, he said, may seem insignificant now, but wait until my voice thunders forth and I build this temple into its final glory. I'll bring the wicked under judgment and I will raise my people. I will glorify them. I will vindicate them before the nations. And so this is the promise that the author of Hebrews is holding out to the church. Think of it along these lines. Just as that temple back in Haggai's day paled in comparison to the Solomonic temple, the author of Hebrews was looking out upon the condition of the church and he saw it as small. He saw it as persecuted. He saw it as insignificant in the eyes of the world and even the people themselves could recognize their pathetic state. They were persecuted. And here comes the word of God saying yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. In other words, the word of God was going forth and the word of God was saying, I will vindicate you. I will save you. I will glorify you and I will bring judgment against your persecutors. I will bring judgment against the wicked. And my voice is not only a voice of salvation, but my voice is also a voice of judgment. It's double-edged in nature. And so in the context of the church's persecution at the hands of unbelievers, the author was reminding them that the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. You know, how often I can remember, and I don't know if my wife has uttered this, these words to my kids. Uh, I, I've never been home to hear them. It's probably happened. I bet just about everybody in this, in this sanctuary has heard these words or has uttered these words. 
But I can remember as a child when my brother and I were kind of doing things that we ought not to do. And my mom would come to us and say, you wait until your father gets home. And that would send utter terror into my brother and me. We would think, oh no, because we knew that when dad was going to come home, he was going to lay down the hurt, right? He was going to, he was going to clean up. He was, you know, and so then, you know, my dad would walk in and all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't always this line, but do you know what your boys have done? They were always his kids when, when it was something bad that had happened. But those words, wait till your father gets home, let us know that dad was coming and with him, recompense. With him, judgment. There's a sense in which that is what the author is saying. But he is saying something far greater. He's saying, wait until your heavenly father comes. His kingdom is coming. And with him is coming judgment. But not simply judgment. This fact should give you peace in the presence, in the present. This fact should give you hope in the present. This fact should give you joy in the midst of your sufferings, knowing that your heavenly Father is coming. And this is why he says in verse 27, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. In other words, everything that is temporal, everything that is evil, everything that is earthly will be removed. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, so that you, church of God, who cannot be shaken, will only remain. You are what is permanent. You are what is everlasting. You are what will endure because of the word of God in you, because of God's mercy in Christ given to you, not to those who persecute you. The things that are shaken are the powers, the authorities, the people that reject the word of God. And the things that cannot be shaken are his people, the church of the living God, his temple and final dwelling place. This is why he reaches back to the book of Haggai to pull that promise into the present to say, yet this promise is still yet to come. Wait until your father comes. Which brings us to our third and final point. In the light of this word of comfort and salvation, what then should we do? Well, the author says in verses 28 and 29, therefore, therefore, So in other words, he's bringing things to a conclusion. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. He says, if this is the state of things, if this is the power of God's word, if this is the nature of the promise of his coming kingdom, then how should we live with gratitude and worship. If we give thought to God's faithfulness throughout the ages, think of all of his faithfulness to send us a redeemer, his only begotten son, no less, to save us from Satan's sin and death, to watch over us and to preserve us moment by moment, to send his spirit to sanctify and purify us, You know, how often, how often do we live life counting up 
what we do not have when our attitude should be the exact opposite of counting up how much we do have. I mean, think of Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden. And God says, I give you every tree in the garden for food to eat. Yet of this one tree, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what's the one thing they focused upon? Not all of the other trees that God had graciously given them, but the single solitary tree that they did not have. That's our tendency, to focus on what we do not have rather than all of the blessings that we have. If these are all of the blessings that we have in Christ, then we of all people should be filled with thanksgiving and praise. That's why he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us be thankful. These are blessings indeed, the unmovable foundation of Zion. How often then do you summit Zion's peak and take in the panoramic view of God's love in Christ? I think all too often it may not be that it's ingratitude, but maybe sometimes what happens is is instead of summiting the peak of Zion and looking out upon God's faithfulness throughout the ages, everything that he has given us in Christ, his grace, the eyes of faith to enable us to see these things, Instead, what we do is because we've descended into the valley of the shadow of death, the darkness of that valley overwhelms us to the point where we forget to look at God's grace and his gifts in our life. We forget all of the blessings that are ours in Christ through the Spirit. And so what this means is I think we need to stop regularly and take stock of our lives and give thanks for all of the blessings in our lives, even in times of want. There's a prayer that is in the valley of vision that is a prayer of thanksgiving. I bless thee for the soul thou hast created, for adorning it, sanctifying it, though it is fixed in barren soil, for the body thou hast given me, for preserving its strength and vigor, for providing sense to enjoy delights, for the ease and freedom of my limbs, for hands, eyes, ears that do thy bidding, for thy royal bounty providing my daily support, for a full table and overflowing cup, for appetite, taste, sweetness, for social joys of relatives and friends, for ability to serve others, for a heart that feels sorrow and necessities, for a mind to care for my fellow men for opportunities of spreading happiness around, for loved ones in the joys of heaven, for my own expectation of seeing thee clearly. How much and how often do we take stock of our lives and give thanks, but especially do we give thanks for the unmovable foundations of Zion, that which comes to us through Jesus Christ? How often outside of worship do we stop And do we worship God? You know, this is essentially the overall thrust of our lives. This is the way it's supposed to be. You know, the fact that the author refers them back to Sinai should remind the the recipients, but as well as us, as to what God called Israel to do when he put Moses in Pharaoh's presence and he said, let my people go. The thing that Moses said was, he says in Exodus 5, 3, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
It wasn't just freedom that Moses sought for the Israelites. It was freedom to worship. And on the heels of the deliverance at the Red Sea, Israel broke out in song and praise. Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. They turned around and they took stock of the blessings in their life. And it caused them to break forth into song and praise for their God. It should be no surprise then that in the book of Revelation, in the 15th chapter, it's the redeemed that sing the song of Moses. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come. Do we live with gratitude? Do we live in an attitude of worship, giving praise to our triune God for the wonderful grace that we have in Christ through the Spirit? Do we live as Paul calls us to giving up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. I think when we give thought to the exhortations that the author gives here at the end of the 12th chapter, as he causes us to give heed to the word of God, to to look upon the promises of God's coming kingdom, and to pray and to give thanks and to worship him, for these wonderful blessings that we have received in Christ, I think we can summarize everything in the familiar words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. May these simple but yet profound words be upon our hearts and minds, moment by moment. We should pray that we would hallow God's name by heeding his word, by giving careful attention to his word read, to his word preached, that we would rejoice in the daily provision that he gives us in our daily bread, Christ the manna from heaven, that he feeds us in times of plenty and in times of want, that, he would, that we would give thanks for our salvation, that we would not count our cups as being half full, but that we would recognize that our cups are overflowing and that we would pray that the Lord would hasten the day and the consummation of his kingdom, and that we would pray with fervency, O Lord, thy kingdom come. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we pray and ask that you would not allow the exigencies of the day, the difficulties, the trials, our own faithlessness to cast our eyes off of Christ who sits at your right hand, and who reigns in the midst of his enemies. So often we fear as we hear news, as we read the news 
as we hear sabers rattling in the distance, the sabers and the ridicule of unbelievers, we fear that somehow maybe the foundations of Zion have been shaken. We pray, O Lord, help us to remember these words yet once more, and you will shake the heavens and the earth, indicating, O Lord, that those things that can be shaken, that is, the things that are visible, will be removed, and the only thing that will remain is your kingdom. O Father, let us plant our hope firmly upon the rock that is the cornerstone of your church, the Lord Jesus Christ, founded upon the apostles and prophets. We pray, O Lord, that you would instill hope into our hearts, that you would give us grace, that you would give us greater sanctification, that you would take away our fears, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, O Lord. Who are we that you are mindful of us, that you should crown us with glory and honor in Christ? O Father, we pray that as we come to hear your preaching of your word, that indeed you would make it an effectual means of salvation unto us, that it would be a way of strengthening us against temptations and corruptions and building us up in grace and establishing our hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Oh, Father, make it so. Sanctify us through your word and glorify yourself in our midst. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.